According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, once again, is our passage today. Hebrews chapter 9. I think we've uh, been dealing with, uh, we've covered 1 through 5 to some extent, and we're now presently looking at 6 through 10, dealing with uh, the issues here related to the old covenant, the old tabernacle, how things used to operate back uh, in the day, as it were. And it was still operating, even uh, as the author of Hebrews is writing this text, even though Jesus has died on the cross, even though the veil of that temple was rent in two, the uh, priesthood of that temple actually spent that Sabbath, Saturday, after Passover, they actually uh, had to sew that veil back together again. And uh, they were so busy doing that, and uh, lo and behold, then our Savior is raised on the third day, and uh, when they weren't looking. And uh, it's interesting related to these things. Well, the veil was rent in two, and they sewed it up, and they kept on doing what they were doing. They kept on functioning in shadows and typology, in ritual, animal ritual, even though Christ is the end of the law for all who believe that the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross was sufficient to accomplish what the animal ritual could never do. And so these are the principles we want to look at here today. And it really it takes it from a, a full context through chapter 9 and into chapter 10 to show how you and I operate in the heavenly places. How you and I operate in the holy of holies in God's presence, in the heavenly places, not an earthly replica. If, he, if Jesus was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all because he's not Levitical related to the earthly requirements of an earthly replica. But in heavenly requirements of a heavenly reality, Jesus is oh so worthy. All right, We have such a high priest. And uh, such a high priest not only uh, communicates his own worthiness, but then the worthiness he invests within each one of us. That we are believer priests in Christ. That we stand in this great confession that, uh, that we have Jesus as the, as the author and perfecter of our faith. So here we are in Hebrews chapter 9. Before we do begin though, let's call upon his faithfulness. Some of these things get deep and so we need, uh, we need his blessing on our time and his word today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we are handling the eternal truth and we are such finite creatures. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who can take the infinite and communicate it to our finite thinking. I thank you, Father, for the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that can open the eyes of our understanding. And Father, we're venturing into deep things as your word calls it. The author of Hebrews even warns his readers that Melchizedek doctrine is, is not easy doctrine. That uh, the readers, at first, he said, they couldn't handle it. That he would love to take them into the deep things of Melchizedek, but they were slow of hearing. And so, Father, I pray this morning that no one here today would be slow of hearing. I pray that we would be ready, that we would be eager, that we would be hungry to feast upon the meat, Father, from your word. Some messages are milk, some messages are meat. This one is, this one's more meat, Father. We're into some heavy things, so I pray that you would open our eyes and bless our time of study. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so dealing with this, uh, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. Even the first covenant, Mosaic law, tabernacle worship, had divine regulations, righteous standards. And you couldn't just go in there and do what you wanted to do. You had to follow the righteous standards. And this is going to bear uh, truth likewise in the new covenant, likewise in the church age, that there are righteous standards. And thankfully, God provides those righteous standards so that we do measure up. Our adequacy is from God, and that's uh, a grace provision as well. And so in reviewing the first tabernacle, he very briefly runs them through it. He says there was a tabernacle, the, out, the first one, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. And he's speaking very rapidly, and he's speaking very generally, and he's not being pin, uh, pinpoint specific, and he's not being precise about how he terms these things. And when he talks about the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense, 
That's technically not true. The golden altar of incense is right outside of that veil, actually in the holy place, not the holy of holies. But we're fine because we recognize he's not speaking with a precision. He's speaking very uh, loosely uh, to put them into this mindset of understanding the first tabernacle and the blessings of what we have now. And so um, he mentions the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. This Ark of the Covenant, by the way, that was gone. It was captured by the Babylonians apparently in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was burned and it was not carried off to Babylon. It was never seen again. It was not in the inventory of items when uh, the Babylonian king was breaking out the dishes and throwing his drunken party with temple uh, uh, furnishings and temple uh, bowls and cups and so forth. The altar, the uh, Ark of the Covenant disappeared in 586 BC, has never been seen again. So when Ezra and Nehemiah brought them back and when they built the new t- uh, t- uh, temple, when Herod expanded that temple marvelously, King Herod spent decades doing a rebuilding project on that temple. So much so that Ezra's temple is usually called Herod's temple with all of his additions and so forth. That holy of holies had never had an Ark of the Covenant. Never had an Ark of the Covenant. So when Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in two, what was exposed was an empty room. There was an empty room. There was no Ark. There was no Aaron's rod the budded. There was no manna. There was no Ten Commandments. All of that was gone. There was an empty naked room and uh, it was exposed for a reason, see, because now we have access through the veil that is his flesh. We have access not to an earthly replica, but to the heavenly reality to stand before God the Father ourselves in this glorious priesthood that we have. It goes on to say in verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Like all great public speakers, the author of Hebrews runs out of time and he realizes, man, he wanted to go longer, but he just couldn't. And uh, he had to cut it short. Of all these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are presently now continuously entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. The fact is the divine worship is the activity of divine worshipers. That priestly service is the activity of priests. This is what priests do. Priests appear before God. Priests represent the people before God. A prophet goes the other direction. A prophet represents God before the people. A prophet will stand and say, thus saith the Lord, and he will represent God and, and, and minister to the people. Whereas a priest ministers to God. That's the direction that it goes. And a representative priesthood, that is a, an appointed priesthood like the Levitical priesthood, represents the non-priests as they stand there worshiping God. They stand in the place of where the non-priests cannot go. And they do so continuously. But they have limited access. They have a continuous priesthood that's continuously speaking through the veil. If you can imagine. In fact, I had a crazy idea. I was going to preach this message through that door. I was going to step in that little hallway there and kind of peek through that little glass door. And because I'm wearing the microphone, of course, it would still come across the speakers and you could still hear. All right. And just, would that be weird? Yeah. You would never forget it though. You would never forget it in a hundred years. You say, remember that time when Pastor Bob, you think, what a, what a crazy guy. All right. But now here's the difference. I mean, this is the, this is the, the veil is doing that. These priests are in the holy place. The Shekinah glory is in the holy of holies. And all they can do is speak through the veil. All they can do is pray through the veil. They can offer incense on that altar that's right next to the veil. So when the incense smoke goes up, it's going through the veil as much as it can. All right. And God can smell it. How much can he smell with a the veil there in place though? See. But one man, one day a year actually gets to go within. One man, one day a year. So what we're talking about is a very limited access a very limited access. And uh, this was a week ago as we were dealing with this. Um, access was continual day, by, day after day, but it was limited to the holy place and it was separated by the veil. 
Those concepts, we can't lose track of them because that's not us. We are not limited and we are not separated. You and I have unlimited, unseparated, face-to-face worship before God the Father. And we're not representing non-priests because we're all priests. Here's another blessing that we have. Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our confession. So who does that exclude? Our confession. Whether you were saved 90 years ago or you were saved this morning, you're a believer priest in the church age. This is our confession. And Jesus Christ being the apostle and high priest of our confession. We enter the veil that is His flesh. We are part of the body of Christ. We stand in the Holy of Holies. Not the earthly replica, the heavenly reality. See, as far as the earthly replica goes, we, we don't qualify. Most of us are Gentile dogs. If, if any of us are partly Jewish, uh, maybe we know it, maybe we don't know it. It doesn't matter. In Christ, we are a new creation. This is our, our position now in Christ. So, no separation. That's our blessing. No separation. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing shall separate us. There's no condemnation, no separation for the body of believers in Christ. But into the holy place, into the second one, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself. Remember, he's a sinner too. The whole, the miracle of the tabernacle is that sinners can stand in the holiness of God. At least one sinner, one day a year, can stand in the holiness of God. And he's going to represent his, his priesthood, he's going to represent his people, and he's going to stand before God. And that's a miracle. The, the Romans didn't have that. The Greeks didn't have that. They had all you know, the Egyptians, all the pagans that had all their gods. Israel was selected for sinners to stand in the presence of the holiness of God. That is an unbelievable blessing. But it requires the shedding of blood because he's a sinner too. And so uh, blood not his own. Blood not his own. See, that an animal has been a substitute. Aaron didn't shed his own blood to go in there. An animal was the substitute. The animal shed his blood so Aaron could be cleansed. So Aaron could represent the people. Blood not his own. But when Jesus entered, guess what? Through his own blood. There was no substitute for Jesus. There was no... uh, How could there be? How could there be a substitute for the perfect sinless Lamb of God? No one could take his place. If he doesn't go, no one goes. And so that's the contrast. And so again, Hebrews 9, 7, into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The sins of the people committed in ignorance. And really, if you ever take the time to study the Levitical priesthood, if you ever go take the time to study Leviticus, just consider the law and consider forgiveness. Consider the kinds of sin that were forgiven, the kinds of sin that could be forgiven. And you recognize, I'll just tell you right now, it's a deep study. And if, unless you study to show yourself approved, you've got to delineate a whole lot of distinctions. All right? Personal sins, national sins, big difference. Personal forgiveness to fellowship, national forgiveness, big difference. All right? And beyond just the issue of forgiveness, then is the component of clean versus unclean. There's the element of, of restored to uh, liturgical service, whereby you're a part of the sacred community, whereby you are able to participate in Passover and Pentecost and booth, booths and all of the ritual things. See, that becomes a consideration. And the fact is, willful sin has no sacrifice. The um, willful sin does not have a sacrifice. Sins committed in ignorance have offerings and procedures in the courtyard of the holy place. Ignorant sins, sins of omission, sins of of unawareness, sins of accident, of non-intentionality. God's grace offers a sacrifice there. You can bring your goat, bring your sheep, bring whatever, your turtle dove. Whatever it is that the law requires you to bring, kill it. It will take your place. You will have a personal forgiveness, which you could have through confession anyway, but you will also have a ritual cleansing and you will be restored to a right relationship with the community of the redeemed. 
That's huge, okay? Now, some people never bothered. I mean, why? That's a lot of dead animals. That costs a lot of money. And basically, who cares anyway? You know, why do I care? What, you know, so just take yourself, take yourself as a common Jewish guy. And basically, you're not very uh, observant. You're not very spiritually minded. And you, you know, your Jewish mother kind of rags on you a lot, but you don't pay much attention to it. And when it comes around to Passover and Pentecost, you're not in a place where you can join with the community and you're fine with that. You can stay home, you got a bowling league or something else you're doing. And so you don't go to the synagogue, you don't go to the temple, you don't partake of the feast, you're not observant, you haven't been working yourself up in days ahead of time clearing out the leaven. You're essentially racially Jewish, but you're not observant, see. And by the time, and this was common, this was this got to be the, the normal. So by the time you get to the New Testament, they were called sinners. And Jesus would eat with tax collectors and with sinners. See, the sinners are basically, the not, we all sin, but if, when the, the ones that were called sinners in the Gospels, those were the non-observant Jews that didn't even try to become ceremonially clean, didn't even try to become a part of the sacred community in worship before the Lord. So that becomes a study. Willful, defiant sins have no sacrifices or liturgical forgiveness. And again, I put you in, in remembrance of Numbers 15. In Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31, the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, one that is blaspheming the Lord... And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be upon him. There's no sin offering, no guilt offering, no trespass offering, no peace offering, no burnt offering, no meal offering, nothing. No red heifer offering, no scapegoat offering. No, I mean, just name it. Search all Leviticus for every offering you can find. Willful defiant sin has none. He is cut off. The only resource he has, his only way of escape, is the Day of Atonement. Once a year, he gets a national do-over. Once a year, he gets a national reboot. The only provision for such willful defiant sins is the totality forgiveness provided via the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. That's the only provision. And that handles the entire nation, that handles every tribe, that handles every individual, and they get a total restart on their sanctification walk as a part of the covenant people of God in community. Okay? And what happens if it's the high priest who does one of these sins? (laughs) Because remember, before he can go into the Holy of Holies, he has to offer these sacrifices for his own unintentional sins and the unintentional sins of the people. But if he himself has a willful defiant sin, he's got nothing. That's right. And my suspicion is like Nadab and Abihu, a high priest with a willful defiant sin, God strikes him down on the spot. And then a new high priest can arise who can bring that sacrifice for the Day of Atonement. Okay? Now all of this, I'm stressing all of this because we're going to have our church age application coming up in chapter 10. And the author of Hebrews is hitting his readers really, really hard. Saying, what happens if you sin defiantly after coming to a knowledge of the truth? Because there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And in the church, how much more dire is it than for Israel? Because Israel, at least, <laughs> they, could, they could endure until the very next day of atonement comes around next October. September, October, sometime in the fall. But for you and for me... What do we have? We have the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was accomplished on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, and he's not coming back to do it again. That doesn't come back over and over again. That was a once and for all. So now, what do we do as the covenant people of God if we are guilty of trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified? There's a dire warning in Hebrews 10. Of the five warning passages in Hebrews, chapter 10 is the finale and chapter 10 is the worst. 
Okay? It's not about losing salvation or going to hell when you die. It's about losing your sanctified place as a part of this body, this community of saints, of priests, of those that can stand in the Holy of Holies. So we'll deal with that. Now the Holy Spirit is signifying this. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. And the reason why the author of Hebrews is eager to get past all of the the stuff his readers already know we believe that clearly the audience of Hebrews is not only Jewish but very much uh, Levitical. That it is a body of former priests that are now church age believers that are thinking about going back to the temple and returning back to Levitical service. And uh, the author of Hebrews is warning them, don't go back to that. And so he very quickly rushes through, I think he's rushing through verses 1 through 7 because he's got a message from the Holy Spirit that he has to get out there and he finally gets to it in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. Here's what the Holy Spirit is telling the author and through the written text is what he's telling us in the book of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place, that it would be the most holy place, is not yet disclosed while the outer tabernacle, while the holy place, the first holy place, is still standing. Which is a symbol for the present time. All right? It's a symbol, it's typology, it's shadow doctrine. And shadow doctrine has its limits. And so here's what the Holy Spirit is saying. I think he's saying two things. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. That the way into the holy place is not disclosed while the I'm sorry, the way into the most holy place is not disclosed while the holy place is still standing. Does that make sense? Let me uh, show you this in a couple of different ways. And if I remember which slide it was. There it is. All right. What I need to do is learn what slide that is and then uh, come back to that slide over and over. All right. Can you see the most holy place in that picture? No. You can see the tarp that's over top of it. You can see you know where it is, but you can't see it. All right. In fact, it's not disclosed. It's not laid bare because there's a veil in front of it. And then in front of the veil is a holy place with another veil. And all of that is covered. And you can't see it. It's not disclosed. Now, if you happen to be a priest, you can get through that first veil. You can get into the holy place, but even there. So now you're in rare company, right? Because think about it. Levi is one tribe out of 12. And then the, of the three divisions of Levi, right? Remember those? Kohath, Merari, and what was the third one? And then, uh, so one of those three is, uh, is, is the priestly line, and even just one of those clans, one of those families within the clan is the, the descendants of Aaron. Okay? So one tribe out of twelve, one clan out of three, one family out of however many families are in that clan, I used to know. Okay? And then those descendants... Oh, by the way, men only. <laughs> Sorry, women. Okay? There were no girl priests. No girl priests, no girl high priests, no priestesses. Men only. Uh, daughters of Aaron were daughters of Aaron. <laughs> they could be married to the priests, and they could hopefully make priestly babies. But they were not priestesses. Okay? Remember, it's the church in which we are neither male nor female, that we have the access to the Father in the church. All right. So one tribe out of 12, one clan out of three, one family out of, I think it's seven, I forget now, how many families are in the, the clan of, of Kohath, okay, was Aaron. Amram and Jochebed were the parents of Aram, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. All right. I'll do the homework later. You can do the homework too. Figure it out. But it's very limited access. Of the whole population of Israel, 
How many can go into that holy place? Very few. Almost nobody made it past. In fact, unless you were Levitical, you didn't make it past that brazen altar at the very beginning of the courtyard. All right, so the, uh, the way access to the most holy place was not disclosed while the holy place is still standing. So we can understand that physically. In physical terms, the most holy place cannot be seen once the holy place and the veil are constructed. All right, once it's constructed, it's now not disclosed. It's now out of sight. And even Moses himself couldn't go in there. As soon as it was constructed, the glory of God filled the most holy place, and even Moses himself had to step out because he's not a descendant of Aaron. He's Aaron's brother. So once this place was constructed, the ark was put in there, the place was constructed around the ark. The ark was in first, right? Then they built it. Now it's not disclosed. And only one man one day a year goes within that veil. So that's physical terms. In physical terms. But I, I believe the author is making a bigger point than that. I believe the Holy Spirit is making a bigger point than that. The way into the holy place is not disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. In other words, the way into the heavenly reality is not disclosed so long as Israel continues to function in the shadows, in the types, in the symbols. In spiritual terms, the heavenly temple, it can be seen in the earthly replica, but it cannot be accessed through the earthly replica. That's a big deal. It can be seen because it's anticipated. It's foreshadowing. It's uh, it's a symbol, as it says here in verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. So through the symbolisms, they can learn about it. Through the symbolisms, they can have a concept. And David obviously had a concept. David had such a love with the Lord that he had a concept of fellowshipping in the in the heavenly realities, even though He never got to go into the earthly temple. In spiritual terms, the heavenly temple can be seen in the earthly replica, but cannot be accessed through the earthly replica. No one is made perfect by Levitical observances. Every high priest that went in there, every high priest that got in there, what happened? He finished his business, he turned around and came right back out. Okay? Okay? Even the pinnacle of liturgical observance never brought a high priest to the Holy of Holies in the third heaven. Never brought a high priest face to face with God the Father. He stood before a Shekinah glory, but not face to face with God the Father as you and I have now and as you and I will have for all eternity. So it can be seen as a foreshadowing, but not accessed through the earthly replica. While the law is a tutor, it is also a sin instigator. It is also a heart veil. And I'm going to spend some time this morning illustrating this for you. And uh, hopefully we'll understand it when when we're done. The law is a tutor. And tabernacle studies are useful. I love tabernacle studies. And I'm sure every Jewish kid throughout the whole Old Testament, they got tabernacle studies in their rabbinic, you know, Hebrew school uh, homeschool curriculum, all right? I'm sure the little Jewish kids learned about the tabernacle and then they learned about the temple all growing up. They learned about all the observances. They learned about Passover. They learned about, you know, why is this day different from other days? And they learned about all of the rituals and all of the the, the calendar and all of the holidays, the holy days for the holy people. And so law is a tutor, very instructive, but it's also a sin instigator and it's also a heart veil. Because the shadows are not the realities. And the shadows, the law, will actually uh, put a veil over their eyes. As we're told in 2 Corinthians 3. Let's understand this. Do you remember Galatians 3.24? We taught a Galatians series just prior to the Philippians series. So it wasn't that long ago. It was uh, in this decade. And... uh, but it was first hours, the 9.30 hour, and I realized that uh, not everyone uh, 
obtains those 930 blessings. Galatians 3.24. You understand we don't double the admission price. You can get the same, you can come at 930 and it doesn't cost a thing more. You can come at 830 for prayer time. We don't charge any more for prayer time either. Galatians 3.24. Law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so we may be justified by faith. In the context here, if I back up to verse 23, before faith came, that is the church age uh, faith and the completed work of Christ, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Even that tells you there's something coming and presently under law, we're bound, we're shut up, where something is, is off limits, something is not yet disclosed the faith which is later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Law is good if you use it lawfully. But law has to be pointed towards something else. Law has an objective. It's a means to an end. It's not an end unto itself. Okay? And this is where legalists lose sight of things. They think law is everything. Follow the rules. Be a good person. Do good things. As if legal observance is, a, is the end unto itself. It's the means to an end. And dispensationally speaking, law was pointing to grace. Law was pointing to something yet to come. The tabernacle is pointing to something yet to come. The tabernacle is a replica of a heavenly reality. The problem is if you get lost in that and you're completely absorbed in the tabernacle, then you confuse the picture with the reality, the shadow with the, with the substance, the symbol with the reality, right? And we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. I think sometimes it happens in doctrinal churches. Why do we learn doctrine? Well, we study to show ourselves approved. Why? As a workman needing not to be ashamed. We're supposed to do something with a doctrine we're learning. It doesn't say study to show yourself approved as a student needing not to be ashamed. It says as a workman needing not to be ashamed. And yet how many believers think the whole purpose for learning is so we can learn more? And I learn so that I can learn. No, we learn so we can live. We learn so we can live. Christ evaluates our production. He doesn't evaluate our knowledge. No one gets a Bible quiz at the judgment seat of Christ we get fire that strikes our production or lack thereof. Okay? So law is a tutor, but it is also a sin instigator. Romans 7. So law is good if you use it lawfully, but also recognize law is a sin instigator. Romans 7. Oh, I didn't get the picture right. I was going to show you a picture. I'll save it for next week. Sin is an instigator. Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So that's a value. There's a benefit. If the Scripture says, thou shalt not covet, well then, that's good to know that. That's good to know that information. But then it can also be an instigator if there's a carnal part of you that says, what's that about? Covet. How do you do that? Is it fun? What's that mean? Thou shalt not steal. Well, wait a minute. What if I do? Thou shalt not fornicate. Well, wait a minute. You know, other people are doing it. They're getting away with it. Looks like fun. So law becomes a sin instigator to the carnal mind. So Paul says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Boy, his parents taught him that and he thought, hmm, what is that? But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, we talked about opportunities last hour. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Well, he learned about it big time because he experienced it. For apart from the law, sin is dead. It gives life to sin. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, I sinned, became alive, and I died. 
Nothing like a wet paint sign to make you, you know. There's, you get, there's a little carnal part of you because the sign says don't. You go, ah, well, okay. You know what I like? I like no photography signs. I take pictures of no photography signs. I find that amusing. Took one in Hollywood. I'll show it to you next week. You know, okay. I won't take a picture, but I'll take a picture of the sign that tells me not to take a picture. I like that. It's a sin instigator. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, commandment is holy and righteous and good. So therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. Now take that as a concept now and multiply it and apply it to a nation that's given a tabernacle, that's given a temple, that's given a a Levitical priesthood. And what is it designed to do and what can it not do? And what happens if, because it can't take people to perfection and glory, what happens then if it becomes the substitute and people just start considering that it is? Like a legalist, like the Apostle Paul could say, well, clearly I'm perfect because I'm better than everybody else I know. Obviously, I'm the pinnacle of humanity because I'm the pinnacle of legalism. And I'm better than every other legalist I can shake a stick at. Okay? And the thing is, you then confuse the shadow with the reality, the symbol with the, with the reality, the, the uh, shadow with the substance, the type with the antitype. Okay? It is a sin instigator. It is also a heart veil. A heart veil. 2 Corinthians 3.15. 2 Corinthians 3.15. Why sometimes uh, evangelizing a Jewish person is so difficult because if they're observant, if they're devout, if they, uh, if they read Moses, they will actually have a hindrance to Jesus. Shouldn't, but they do. See, Moses is supposed to lead them to Jesus. Moses promised, a prophet like me is coming. But to this day, when they read Moses, a veil lies on their heart. So 2 Corinthians 3.15, so to this day. Um, verse 14 says, Their minds were hardened, for to this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Remember, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. If they don't believe, Christ is not the end of the law. They're still under law, they're still in darkness. The law becomes a heart veil because it's removed in Christ. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So, this tabernacle. Back in the day, it was important. Back in the day, it was designed to lead to what follows. But after Calvary... Now what is it? The author of Hebrews is telling his readers, now it's a snare. Now it's a problem. Now that earthly replica will not take you to where Christ has taken us. And so really, I can't think of a, of a line of argumentation more effective than this as the author of Hebrews is writing to these former priests, urging them not to apostatize, not to go back to their Levitical service. So the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place, the true holy place, the heavenly holy place, in the presence of God the Father and Jesus Christ seated at His right hand, the tabernacle will never get you there. The way into the holy place is not yet disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. You know something? When, when uh, God destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., in a lot of ways, there's a blessing in that. Yes, it's national discipline. Yes, it's national judgment. Horrific stories. Unbelievable. But 
the fact that there's no Jewish temple on the mount today, in a way, is helpful. You see what I'm saying? Because now we can, we can talk about Christ and the heavenly realities and there is no earthly replica anymore. Now there will be. They're looking to build it today if they could. They've just got to get that pesky mosque off the hill first. And then once that mosque is gone, then they can put their temple up there. And we know they will. Antichrist will sit in that temple someday. So it's going to be rebuilt. There will be a Jewish temple for Antichrist to defile. It just hasn't been built yet as of today. But they want to. The furnishings are constructed. The, the robes are sewn. Everything is ready to go. All the walls, all the building materials, everything is ready to go. They just need to clear the land. And they can put that temple up very quickly. It is a symbol for the present time. A symbol for the present time. Do we understand symbology? Do we understand typology? Do we understand shadow doctrine? How did God, God operate for all those years in the shadows to prepare the way for the substance, to prepare the way for us in the church age? A symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. They are impotent and they are designed to be impotent. They do not have the power of God so as to perfect the sinner, the worshiper. You and I, on the other hand, we have the substance. We have the reality. We have what they never had. Both gifts and sacrifices are, again, it's present tense, presently being offered. That's why we believe this book had to have been written prior to 70 AD because the temple is still operational even prior to 66 AD because there was a point in the siege that they had to stop bringing the offerings. They ran out of food. They ran out of animals. They starved. They were eating their own children by the end of the siege. Oh, read Josephus sometime. and It's a gruesome, gruesome account. But when the author of Hebrews is writing this, sacrifices are still being offered. Impotent sacrifices that perfected nobody since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations, uh, that is righteous commandments, the kayamata, righteous commandments, for the body imposed until a time of reformation, bodily requirements with no conscience perfection until a time of reformation. That's us. That's the reality of the church age whereby our conscience is cleansed, our soul is made clean. All right. Symbols, typology, shadow doctrine have legitimate functions and benefits, but no eternal perfection. Symbols, and this is very worthwhile. This gets abused, but rather than abuse it, let's, let's biblically handle it. Symbols, typology, and shadow doctrine. They're useful. They're legitimate. There are legitimate functions and benefits, but no eternal perfection. And so we recommend, if you're going to be a, a, stu- a student of the whole counsel of the Word of God, then there's a lot of homework to do. There's a lot to recognize in terms of symbols. To realize how uh, oil is used, for example, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, representative of the Holy Spirit, representative of holiness. Um, realizing how the sun, moon, and stars are used. If uh, Joseph has a dream about the sun, moon, and the stars and they're bowing down, we want to understand the symbolism. Fat cows, skinny cows, symbolism. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar in his dream, head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron, partly of clay. Symbols. They're valuable. They're legitimate. Let's recognize that they serve a purpose, they communicate, they have an objective. When it comes to typology and shadow doctrine, none of them provide the eternal benefit that the fulfillment does. Typology. Joseph was a type of Christ, right? Joseph, the coat of many colors, Joseph, he was a type of Christ, beloved by his father, 
Wasn't Jesus beloved by his father? Hated by his brethren. Coat of many colors, Joseph was hated by his brethren. They threw him down a well, they sold him into slavery, they shipped him off, they told his father that he was dead. Hated by his brethren. Was Jesus not hated by his brethren? All right. Joseph goes down to Egypt, he's given a Gentile bride. How about that? Jesus has a bride, neither Jew nor Gentile, one body in Christ. There's an interesting corollary. Um, Israel was about to perish. Joseph saved him. Joseph provided because of the set. he stored away food during seven years of plenty and he had food to spare during the seven years of famine. Israel would have perished except Joseph was their savior. So all of these different ways, Joseph, coat of many colors, Joseph, okay? Not Virgin Mary Joseph, coat of many colors, Joseph, Old Testament Joseph. He was a type of Christ, a marvelous type of Christ. But in that typology, does he save us from our sins? Do we get to go to heaven when we die? Because the typology is pointing to an antitype, pointing to a fulfillment, pointing to the greater one on the way. Okay? Abraham sacrificing Isaac, same thing. Marvelous shadow doctrine. Marvelous typology. A father loves his son. A, the son is willing to die. The son trusts his father. The father is going to put his son to death. That whole picture of Abraham and Isaac is typology. It is shadow doctrine. It is pointing ahead. And it's great. We get it. We love it. We can use it marvelously to to preach a gospel. And why can we do that? Because we also have the fulfillment. We have the antitype. We have Jesus Christ on the cross delivered over by the predetermined plan of God. We have Jesus Christ on the cross whom the Father put to death. The Father administered wrath on His Son so that you and I could have eternal life. You realize if Jesus never goes to the cross, if we don't know about Calvary, if we don't have the New Testament, even the shadow loses its glory. The shadow loses its point. The shadow. How would we preach the Abraham and Isaac story without Calvary, without the cross. So this, we, we know there's a place for it. We know that it's beautiful. We know that it's instructive. We know that it anticipates something else along the way. So that when it comes, we identify with it and we can have the full worship of it, not just in the shadows, but in the substance. Not just in the type, but in the anti-type. Because Abraham and Isaac don't, don't give us eternal life. But the antitype, God the Father and Jesus Christ in pouring forth wrath on sin, that does give us eternal life, right? So the whole point here, they have legitimate functions and benefits, but no eternal perfection. All right, so I've illustrated with Joseph. I've illustrated with Isaac. How about Moses? Moses, kinsman redeemer, Moses delivered a people out of bondage, brought them through the Red Sea, set them into a place of freedom. The waters came crashing down. There was no way back. It's a one-way ticket out of slavery. It's a type of Christ. It's shadow doctrine. It's typology. Because you and I, we were slaves in the slave market of sin. And we couldn't buy our way out. We couldn't part the waters. We couldn't get out of there. God did. He got us out of there. And then the waters come crashing down and there's no going back. Eternal security. We can't lose our salvation. We are a redeemed people forevermore. So Moses is a type of Christ. It's shadow doctrine. It's anticipating a future redemption at the cross. All right, so that's three illustrations. You want more? Okay. How many more do you want? Let's do this all day. The Scriptures do this again and again and again and again because there's a benefit to redundancy. There's a benefit to repetition. There's a benefit to review. All right. And so the author of Hebrews makes this point in chapter 7 and chapter 9 and in chapter 10. Since he gave three examples, I gave three examples. 
chapter 7 and verse 19. When were we in chapter 7? It seems like it was like 20 years ago. It was a while. Okay. Maybe you've forgotten some of this. Um, hmm. Verse 11 says, If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? And that just there says it. If Levitical priesthood could give you perfection, why do we need a Melchizedek priesthood? And the question answers itself. Clearly, it can't, so it doesn't. So we need one. Perfection is not through the Levitical priesthood. And it's even more evident that when a priesthood is changed, there's a change of law. And it's even more evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And it's even more evident, in fact, it's evident, evidently more evident in verse 15, clearer still, another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. Wow, something's going on here that the Levitical priesthood can't do. And so here he is, here's Jesus to do what Aaron and all the other high priests can't do. Who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Amen? You have that same indestructible life. I have that same indestructible life. None of us could be Levitical priests. That's a physical requirement. None of us measure up. But a Melchizedek priesthood in Christ? What's the requirement? The power of an indestructible life. That's me. Hello. I've had that since a Saturday morning in 1973. Okay, You've had it since that day you placed your faith in Christ. And so... Verse 18 says, on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Why would you expect it to? It's a shadow of good things to come. Why would you expect the law to make anything perfect? Even one thing perfect. If it can make one thing perfect, that makes the cross unnecessary. Over to chapter 9 and verse 9. It's our passage today. I think. I've got sticky pages. Here we go. Which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. They're not eternally fulfilling. They're not eternally efficacious. Next year, they're going to do it all over again. And then chapter 10 and verse 1. The law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very substance of things, not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, can never make perfect those who draw near. Never, not once. Next year they'll do it again. Next year they'll do it again. Next year they'll do it again. What's going to stop it? Well, God's wrath will destroy the temple and destroy the Jewish people. Uh, But what's going to stop it? Christ is going to stop it. Jesus is going to come once and for all. Jesus is the end of the law for all who believe. Jesus stops it because He fulfills it. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin year by year. So symbols, typology, shadow doctrine, they have legitimate functions and benefits, but no eternal perfection. However, Jesus, the blood of Christ, on the other hand, supplies eternal perfection. Again, it's a point that the author of Hebrews makes over and over and over again. You say, all right, you told me once already. I get it. Why are you telling me a second time? Okay, you told me twice already. I get it. Why are you telling me a third time? Because this is how God communicates. He's so faithful. Hebrews 9.14 Hmm. Verse 11 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Here we go again. Here we go again. Here we go again. But Jesus, verse 14, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering, once and for all, 
Brother, believe it. Once and for all, sinner, receive it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. Hebrews 10.10 and Hebrews 10.14. Oh, by the way, I read 10.14 instead of 9.14, didn't I? 9.14 says, how much more? 9.13 says, if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... All that animal ritual can leave you ceremonially capable physically in the flesh to go have a Passover dinner and be sanctified. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's not just a bodily ritual. It's not just a typology or shadow ritual. It's reality. So that's 9.14. And then 10.10 and 14 which I already read, 10.14. But by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. I love that hymn. Once and for all. Not over and over and over again. Once and for all. To me, that's the biggest blasphemy of the Roman Catholic Mass. The biggest blasphemy to me is they have this hocus-pocus power that the priest can do with his, uh, if he has the apostolic succession uh, ordination and all that, is he can take the wafer and he can take the cup and he can metaphysically turn them into the body and blood of Jesus Christ so that he can re-sacrifice them in the Mass. No, once and for all. We're not re-sacrificing Jesus. Once and for all. He died once and for all. All right. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. It's not Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. It's it's the commencement of the church age. It's the the post-crucifixion reformation of worship. Israel will receive this at the second advent. The bodily regulations given to Israel had legitimate functions and benefits but must not be exchanged for true spirituality. Bodily regulations. Yeah, they benefited. They benefited from their sanctified diet. They benefited from their sanctified practices. They benefited from their hygienic practices and and washings. They benefited from their sexual practices. They benefited in a lot of ways that pagan Gentiles, uh, they, they struggled with, all right? There was a legitimate function and benefit but must not be exchanged for true spirituality. I can stay in Hebrews here. Hebrews 13, verses 9 and 10. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. You and I can function as grace believer priests and we're going to have benefit in a way that, you know, you could eat from the table of showbread and function in the tabernacle and do all that stuff. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. It goes on to contrast the animals whose blood is brought into the holy place and then us once and for all. Colossians 2. You want to be a legalist? You think there's value in that? There's no value in that. Even worse, I think it becomes a snare. I think it becomes, you become a bigger sinner than the non-legalist. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandment and teachings of men. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. Is that spirituality? Are you more spiritual if you're a teetotaler or less spiritual if you drink alcohol? Are you more spiritual if you're a vegetarian or least spiritual if you're a carnivore? I think it's the other way around. It's neither, who cares? That's just earthly stuff. 
things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandment and teachings of man. These are matters which have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value. Do you see that there? Colossians 2.23 They are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Legalism does not solve your sin problem. It just makes it worse. It gives you a prideful way to express your sin nature. It is not the answer to your sin nature. Grace is the answer to your sin nature. The Word of God, living the Word of God as a living sacrifice is the answer to your sin nature. Not legalism. The Aaronic priesthood of Israel's past will be reformed in the millennium to the Zadokite priesthood for Israel's future. Now I've got to leave you with this because I'm almost out of time. (laughs) There is a time of reformation coming up. And it's a time for the Jewish people and their temple. And I think this is maybe the biggest misconception for the book of Hebrews as we apply it today. Because we make our application today as Melchizedek priests in Christ. And that's great. Keep doing that. We're going to keep doing that. But Israel, at the second advent, when Jesus comes and he conquers, and he, of course, overthrows Antichrist, and Satan is bound, and he conquers, and he rules in Jerusalem, the Davidic throne is established, Jerusalem itself is lifted up, there's going to be geographic changes. Jerusalem will be lifted up as a plain. There's going to be a new temple built there that's so large it doesn't fit on the current temple mount, but it will be there in the millennium. And it's not, here's the thing, it is a reformed Jewish priesthood. It is after the order of Zadok. I haven't used that name yet in this class. We talk about Melchizedek. Ours is the priesthood of Melchizedek. Okay, if you never heard of Zadok, write these verses down. I'll begin next week with this. A Zadokite priesthood. A Zadokite priesthood is a Levitical priesthood. It is a division within the descendants of Aaron, within the the line of Levi. Zadok was a faithful priest during David's generation. And so there is a reformation to the Levitical priesthood. And this, this is a shock, all right? Just think about it. Because we spent all this time contrasting. Aaronic priesthood was impotent. uh, Melchizedek priesthood is awesome. Jesus is awesome. We're awesome in Jesus. We have a Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. We use it today. But what's coming for Israel in the millennium is not a Melchizedek priesthood. What's coming for Israel is a reformed priesthood. Aaronic, Levitical priesthood, according to the descendants of Zadok, the line of Zadok. Okay? Now there's an etymology similarity because the Zadok of Zadok is like the the Zedek in Melchizedek. All right? So they're both grounded in righteousness. But theirs is not a kingly priesthood as ours is. The Melech part of Melchizedek is not theirs, it's us. Jesus is the king and we're the bride of Christ. The Jewish people are given a Zadokite priesthood for Israel's future. And you'll read about that in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, in particular focus on chapter 44, verses 15 through 31. So if you don't want to read nine chapters of Ezekiel, uh, read, read them. Read nine chapters of Ezekiel, but then pay extra close attention when you're in chapter 44 to verses 15 through 31. It's the second half of that chapter. And you're going to notice Zadok is exalted. Of all the lines of, of, uh, of Eliezer and Ithamar, of all the lines of, uh, remember Nadab and Abihu were killed, but Eliezer and Ithamar are the two lines of Aaron that then descend. And of all those lines, and David organized them into 24 divisions, and of all those divisions, Zadok was the faithful priest in the days of David, in that transition from David to Solomon. Zadok becomes a Zadokite priesthood, a Levitical Zadokite priesthood in the millennial kingdom. 
All right, we'll pick up here next week. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for substance, not shadows. The shadows were great back in the day, but today, Father, all day, every day, we operate in the substance. We stand before the throne of grace to obtain grace and find mercy to help in time of need. I thank you for our Savior. I thank you that he's seated at your right hand. We're seated at his right hand. Father, I thank you for the access we have, the power of an indestructible life. Father, for the veil which is his flesh, we enter into it, Father. We have confidence to pass between, be within the veil. So, Father, make these passages very real to us. Open our eyes. We thank you, Father. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will conclude.